You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vial, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. For episode 22, we connect with Dr. Christian Reich, founder and chief scientific officer of Moonlake Immunotherapeutics. Find out the key things that have contributed to Dr. Reich's success in raising capital and having to tell his story 521 times. Thank you for joining us today on First in Human, Dr. Christian Reich. Simon, thank you for allowing me to be here. Maybe a quick introduction, Christian Reich. Um, I actually live in Hamburg, Germany, originally now working a lot from Switzerland. I'm an MD-PhD I was actually trained as an immunologist and dermatologist. As you can see, I'm old. I spent most of my life doing research on inflammatory skin diseases. I think I contributed quite a bit to developing, especially the new targeted therapies, the antibody therapies. And just imagine, Simon, when I started, we were putting tar on our psoriasis patients and giving them some phototherapy. And the severely affected were in the hospitals for months every year. Today, you inject 1 ml of an antibody once every two or three months, and 90% of the patients clear. So I think I can proudly say that we have seen an absolute revolution in the way we can treat not only inflammatory skin, but actually quite a number of inflammatory conditions in rheumatology, in dermatology, in other indications. This progress has indeed been driven by two factors, and that sums up my professional career also quite a bit. It's a research right? So identifying where this inflammation is coming from, what are the factors that work together to give a patient a disease? And then secondly, and I use the antibodies as an example, be able to create antibodies that specifically target these cytokines. So normalizing an exaggerated immune response, if you have a disease where there's too much TNF or R17, you give an antibody against TNF-17, so you specifically normalize, I use this word on purpose, I don't think we can speak here about a general immunosuppressive effect, this is the beauty of these targeted therapies, but by antagonizing, normalizing these cytokines, seeing fantastic responses, right? So I've been lucky and obviously left all of this behind to become Chief Scientific Officer of Moonlake recently. Why is this, Simon? After all these years, almost decades now with the antibodies, Moonlake is developing a nanobody, a molecule that we will probably talk a little bit more about in the upcoming minutes. I think a molecule that has the potential to do things that antibodies do probably just better, right? And then also, again, as an immunologist, after this first big wave of TNF-driven inflammatory diseases, how many indications did Yumira have in the end? 18, 19, right? So IBD, rheumatological indications, dermatological indications. I think what we currently see is a similar development for the IL-17 pathway. I'm convinced that there is a growing number of diseases where this pathway is the driving force behind the disease. And obviously this nanobody sonilokimab that Mulek is developing does not only have this unique molecule characteristics, but also optimizes the way we can inhibit this pathway by blocking not only IL-17A, but also this other IL-17 family member, IL-17F. 
That was a power intro. You've had several careers. You were a PI, you were a teacher, you were an academic, and now you're a founder of a biotech company. These are radically different in scope and type of role. What's changed in what's been required of you and how have you kind of adapted to now being a CSO and founder? You have to sleep less, right? No, but honestly, in my previous life, I saw thousands and thousands of patients. And I still think this gives you the authenticity that you really need to understand what patients want and what prescribers want. I did a lot of research. I think I have a passion for this understanding of disease processes. But then taking it also to the translational level, now how can we use this knowledge to optimize therapies? And again, I did so many clinical trials. I was not only a professor, not only seeing patients. I had my own clinical trial site. I did hundreds of these trials. And then in the end, you suddenly see this molecule. You see this nanobody and you think, now you have to put it into the test. Be brave, right? Let's go out there. Let's create clinical trials. Let's try to give birth to a new therapeutic molecule. Indications and hydradenitis suprativa, cirrhotic arthritis arises. So indications where I felt relatively familiar with, but it was a huge step, right? And I still wake up every morning and say, God, what have you done? What drives me, the excitement comes from the idea maybe indeed we are able to bring a new therapy to patients. It's not this simple humanitarian aspect. I've seen patients with hydradenitis suprativa, right? There's a single biologic that is approved for this condition right now, which is adalimumab, and it gives 50% of the patients a 50% improvement. So I know that this term unmet need is overused, but I think here you really have a disease where there is a lot of unmet need. And my excitement, my passion comes from this hope, this wish that, yes, indeed, we can bring a new therapy to patients and we can contribute that some of the diseases that still cannot be well managed today can be managed better in the future. I'd love to dig in there on, on unmet need. If you were an immunologist or giving advice to a young immunologist going into the field, lots of very hot topics of research today, right? Generalized paritis of unknown origin, sarcoidosis, PNs still facing. What are the unmet needs that, you know, Moon Lake with all of its capital and team can't go address that you don't want to see more attention given to? I have a son that studied medicine at Imperial College, and we had conversations, obviously, and he said, yeah, immunology, dermatology, immunology, but you have discovered it all, right? What's left? I said, we have not even discovered 2%. <laughs> so I cannot help myself, Simon. I'm an immunology man. Obviously, if you think about it, many other specialties like oncology, how much immunology is there in oncology? All the modern or many of the modern oncology treatments are, if you think about it, immunologic treatments that manipulate the immune system with the hope that they activate the immune system defense the cancer better. Definitely all surface diseases, the mucosa, the skin, even the liver, immunologically, I think, is a surface to a certain degree. All these surface diseases, diseases that occur on surfaces, all these chronic inflammatory diseases, they are all hard-boiled immunologic diseases. And if you add up the prevalences of these diseases, Simon, you have 20%, right? Psoriasis is two, atopic dermatitis is another three, a PSA is 05, HS probably 1%, rheumatoid is 1%, and so on and so on, right? So... In summary, we talk about things that can go wrong immunologically and that give human beings a plethora of diseases. The underlying pathways are overlapping. We already talked about this to a certain degree. There is so much left to be discovered. 
You mentioned some, right? Vitiligo, alopecia areata, vasculitis, prurigonodularis, hepatitis, many kidney diseases. There are so many diseases. You mentioned systemic lupus, right? Do we really have good drugs to treat systemic lupus? And what is even systemic lupus? Is it a kidney disease? Is it a skin disease? What is it? So if you ask me, Simon, would I still advise a young researcher today that go into immunology is fantastic? Absolutely, yes. Is it a door opener to multiple specialties and very large group of diseases across different specialties? I absolutely think yes. Do I continue to believe that many new therapies now and in the future will come from an improved understanding and then also therapeutic manipulation of the disease pathways? Absolutely, yes. If you ask me, would you do it again? I would say yes. If a young doctor asked me, is it worth going into immunology? I would loud and proud say yes. I'm going to give you three back-to-back questions and you take them in the order you want. The first is we had Frank Watanabe on the podcast not too long ago, a peer of your CEO of Arcutus, who said underinvestment in dermatology therapeutic area relative to others, thinks there should be more therapeutic area investment in dermatology. Curious to get your thoughts there. The second is you guys are pioneering. You're up against big pharma competitors. Some biotechs are doing that. Not as many as maybe some would hope are going late stages clinical trials competing directly with pharma. I'm curious. Where do you think the balance is? Is innovation being driven by biotech, pharma? Where is the future there? And then lastly, next generation modality, nanobodies, bispecific antibodies, Crystal doing some work in cell and gene therapy. Is the future of Derm more of these next generation modalities? And where do you see that taking forward? So first of all, do we need more drugs in dermatology? Are there still unmet needs? Quite a bit. This includes injectables like bodies, antibodies, nanobodies, other molecules. This may also include some oral therapies if they give patients an advantage and have an acceptable benefit-risk profile. So will we continue to see a development in the space of immunology? Absolutely, yes, right? There are so many chronic inflammatory conditions. And that's the other thing, right? We still talk about treatments that make patients better as long as they take it. We have evidence that some of these treatments may have some disease-modifying effects. But of course, ultimately, the dream, the vision, the hope would be, do we find immunologic vaccinations that allow us to cure some of these diseases? And it's complicated because not many of them are straightforward autoimmune diseases, right? So number one, I think a loud and clear yes. Number two, biotech was large pharma. I think a lot of innovation comes from biotech. A lot of innovation still comes from academia. And then the poor professors, they stumble their first steps into forming a company And then it takes ages, the corporate. What is more complex than clinical development? For good reasons. You need a big apparatus to run clinical trials. You need to interact with CROs that overwhelm you if you're a small company. All of this, you need a lot of money. And I'm terribly oversimplifying here. But I think it takes great courage and great effort for a small company to really do advanced steps in clinical development. And I'm very proud that Moonlake will finish its third global phase two program by the end of this year, right? I think this says something. But as an idea generator, I think biotech is hard to be. And if you see which drugs have the big pharma companies brought to market successfully in recent years, not many of them were actually developed in-house, right? They were developed by small biotech companies. But of course, these big, well-oiled machines Do they know better how to run phase three trials? Do they have a center of excellence for regulatory where you have 25 people? Of course, right? So when it comes to ideas and innovations, I think biotech is big. When it comes to executing clinical development, 
And obviously, bringing drugs to market, this is where big pharma obviously score. Your last question, the nanobodies, the... Yeah, next generation. It seems to be, and again, I'm terribly oversimplifying here, but not all sites of inflammation that can be affected by inflammatory diseases are easy to reach for an antibody that you give systemically. We call them difficult to reach sites of inflammation. I wouldn't think that a serratic plaque, for example, is a difficult to reach site of inflammation, but I would think that a deep nodule in HS surrounded by scar tissue, a tunnel, an emphasis in PSA, I would think that there are difficult to reach sites of inflammation. We have evidence that the smaller your targeting molecule is, the better is your tissue penetration. Some of these molecules, including our nanobodies from Lookup, they have an albumin binding peak. The original idea is that you prolong the half-life to the two weeks, for example, that we have. But patients have a swollen joint if they have arthritis because there's an accumulation of albumin-rich fluid. And that's not rocket science, Simon, but suddenly we discover that having an albumin binding part also helps your molecule to specifically enrich at sites of inflammation because these sites have more albumin than healthy tissue. There's also this idea that why evolution has produced nanobodies is because they wanted to have targeted therapies that find the functionally relevant epitopes better. I'll give you one example. Some cancers are being treated by blocking their growth receptor with an antibody. And then these cancers have a little mutation in their receptor and the antibody, because of steric hindrance, no longer binds. And the tumor escapes the inhibitory effect. Now, the nanobody that binds the same growth factor receptor still binds and still has an inhibitory effect. So there is some hypothesis involved in what I said. But if I look into the field of cancer, if I look into the field of virology, we know that nanobodies against SARS-CoV-2, just to give you another example, they bind much better than antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. In the field of inflammation, where we need tissue penetration, we need albuminic. I have the idea that at least in multiple areas, the nanobodies will take over, right? And that they are antibodies 2.0. You've been quite successful raising capital. This is no easy feat as a biotech company, certainly within a bear market like we've been in. What are the lessons learned in storytelling and investor relations? <laughs> How have you been so successful? I like your word storytelling. Yes, you have to be able to tell your story 521 times. Of course, you need to have a solid idea. You need to have solid preclinical data. You need to have good science. I think you need to be able to tell a story. It helps if you have a first phase one data in diseased patients, right? That would be a general advice that you go into the disease as quickly as possible. And then you have to run around and put it all together and hopefully convince investors that what you have makes a lot of sense. Now, if you ask me as a scientist, do I necessarily think that all the investments I see left and right, that they are based on evidence and that they are based on rock-solid data, or they're sometimes based on six patients treated in a phase one for some weeks, and no one knows what's really going on, but it's all driven by hope. And so, yes, but Simon, without money, these things do not fly. And as a responsible sponsor, as a responsible biotech, you have to get your things right from the get-go. Do your work properly. Do your study designs properly. Put the right scientific experiments in place. Do your preclinical work properly. I think there is no alternative to this. And also when at some point Big Pharma will look into what you have been doing, I think everybody will be glad if they see, oh, this has been done very properly.
this has been done like we would have been doing this. So unfortunately, being a biotech, Simon, this is my suggestion here, is no excuse. You still have to do your things very properly and then you have to go around and convince investors that what you do makes sense and that you actually have a potential to develop something new that is relevant. Well, your enthusiasm for the science is, is palpable and the fervor is real. So I can see where investors got some level of attraction. But maybe tell us a little bit more about clinical trials. You've run quite a few of them. If a small biotech company were approaching you and saying, we've got a clinical trial coming up, how should we think about CRO selection, site selection, protocol design, endpoint selection, all these kind of key questions that these teams have. Many of them are really struggling. How would you advise them and give them input? So I mean, very good point. It depends a little bit how your personnel is composed. Do you have people on board that have a lot of experience in clinical development? But let's say the classical. A few professors found something super interesting, a new target. They looked at this in an animal model, great promise. They've never designed a clinical trial. They don't know what a CRO is. Boy, do they face a high hurdle. If you have 15, 20 people, any collaboration with a big CRO will likely overwhelm you. You don't even have enough stuff to supervise what they're doing. This would be the minimum requirement for any sponsor. And we all know the names. You have huge CROs that have done this a million times, but they have a huge apparatus. It's like you against a whale. It's a small Volkswagen against a jumbo jet. So it's super hard to find a way to optimally interact. As a small biotech, what you would wish is you get a customized CRO that helps you in different areas, that brings the expertise for study design to you, that requires some therapeutic expertise, right? So do you use PASI 75 or PASI 90? Do you use high school 50? Or high school? There are many delicate questions that help you to address the regulatory questions that you have. You need to exchange with the EMA and with the FDA, and there's this whole regulatory world. And then, of course, you need to execute the clinical trials. Which countries do you select? Which sites do you select? How do you train the site? There are multiple questions. And ideally, of course, you have a partner that can do this all. Now, I'm not sure that any partner could bring this to all indications. So maybe one solution is that you say, and I'm just making this up here, that you say, look, we are only dermatology, but we do everything in dermatology. We even have our own KOL network, we do everything. Just give us a try. We can give you advice on preclinical. This is how we would do the phase one, SAD, the first in disease patient, so that they take you by the hand and walk with you all the way. And that do this in a way that you don't have to worry about quality. Because again, this oversight, if you do a global phase two program, just one global phase two program, this can already be overwhelming for a very small company that has to use their brains and their time for other things. So this is a little bit of a dilemma. If you want to do a global phase two, I think you will go to one of the big CROs. But again, then you have this disproportional relationship. You are small and they are huge and you just have to pray that it works out. So I do see room for specialized CROs. And specialized doesn't mean they only sit in the US or they only sit in Poland or Germany or what have you. But small means that they're focused. But in one area, this vertical approach, they know everything. So they can offer a full service package. I like the jumbo jet and Volkswagen. It's very evocative. It's still in my mind's eye. Last question for you. At Bio, we think a lot about applications of technology where technology can drive clinical trials to be more efficient. In your experience, where have you seen room where, where you really thought technology could have had an impact in driven better outcomes? But first of all, you have to do things that regulatory authorities approve, right? And that says something. 
they're not the most innovative folks out there. But the corona crisis, which was a big crisis for clinical development, as you will immediately understand, has taught us, again, the hard way that we need to think about alternative ways of doing clinical trials. Remote, for example, that patients don't have to come every week. That even more complex, and again, I'm using dermatology here as an example, even more complex skin cores can be assessed at home. Both photography, teledermatology, some really new ways of doing this. We all do electronic data entry nowadays, right? But to really optimize this, to take this to a different level, while having all the data protection in place, that's a huge thing in IT, while primarily sits in the US, right? Here in Europe, GDPR is, wow, you hear this and you freeze, your hairs go up. I want to see progress being made in IT solutions, definitely. This has to be a joint activity with regulatory authorities because they need to have trust in what you're doing. Otherwise, you will not use it. It needs to fulfill all these formal data protection elements. But there is also patient recruitment, right? I see enormous room for going to social media, more cleverly address patients that really would benefit from participation in a clinical trial. So not only new CROs that are smaller, probably vertical, but also CROs that are really innovative, but that get this right from the first place. There's nothing worse than using an electronic system and then you find out that the cool stylus allows investigators to enter numbers that make no sense and there's no control of the system. Very much agreed there. Well, with that, Dr. Reich, it was a total thrill chatting. Thank you so much for joining me. Simon, absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google 